that said, hey, Briggs, pick a date. Okay. You know what? We can celebrate. For sure. But we can come together, yeah. talk about the weather, call that Australia Day. I said, how about my chase? That's a good one. And we can do it on your nan's grave. We can piss up, piss on the face, get rid of the Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Um, we always find a nice uh, intro question to ask is sort of your sort of academic journey. Like, how did you sort of get interested into the things you do now? And sort of like, how did you sort of change as you, as you got at the more and more advanced levels? So mm -hmm. was your entry onto this sort of career path and these research interests one of sort of progressive changes or were there specific moments that pulled you towards writers like Marx or in issues of indigenous environmental justice? Right. Uh, these are defining two different time periods in my life. Marx was early on, right from childhood, because my mother was interested in student politics and she had read a lot of Marx and she introduced me. So I was... I was fascinated with Marx as a babe, but not really an academic sense, right? because in, I grew up in India and there was a lot of other entry points to socialism, socialist thought, and kind of engagement with national liberation, revolutionary questions, mostly with the native, those who wrote in native languages. So there was a there was Marx and as an aspirational figure, and then there was several other entry points. And then once I ventured into academia, Marx became kind of a textbook because you surround yourself with fellow Marxists, right. and it's kind of rigorous study. You do it as a text, not merely as an aspiration or someone who's fascinated with. You can continue to be fascinated with him, but you still need to do kind of doctrinal robust study and engage in the dialogue and conversation so that was different but my PhD work was absolutely different because I was interested in environment conservation and indigenous movements but I never thought I would do a PhD on it because my specialization was criminal law uh, so I wanted to do criminology but ended up having a break. So I went back to India and worked for two years in the policy think tank, which I deeply regretted and then rushed back to academia to do my influence and environmental policy in Cambridge. And uh, at, at that point, I was thinking of uh, a longer question that would also be meaningful and uh, chime with my research interests and also contribute differently because I'm always thinking about how academia can collaborate with communities and people's movements. So not really work in exist in the abstract theory uh, cannot be detached from lived experiences and lived reality. So I was thinking of what's the closest that can come to this. And I thought of indigenous movements and because I'm trained as a lawyer, what do courts do in these uh, context and how do they contribute to environmental movements and how do they receive inputs from environmental movements was intriguing. So I thought that had a lot of questions to be explored and mm -hmm. that's how I started my PhD. Oh, he's on the phone. Okay. <laughs> I thought he was going to say something. No, no, sorry. I'm just checking the levels because last time there was a problem with my mic where uh, I couldn't be heard on the stream so this time around i'm i'm trying to be a little bit more uh careful um but yeah that, thank you so much for for that uh origin story <laughs> it's actually <Yes. laughs> it's fantastic um mm -hmm. i one of the questions that i'd um, i really want to ask you because this is kind of how mm -hmm. i found you on twitter 
um i mean hey as terrible of a place as twitter is uh sometimes it can also be a wonderful place i mean we that's how we find most of our guests these days um before that i think i used to go on like specific university websites and ngo websites and just email people you know in the lists of Mm -hmm. like environmental scientists and social scientists and such but um but twitter even though it makes me angry as hell sometimes <laughs> it's also uh, a fantastic place to to be able to see like-minded people and and also just view like fantastic research that's uh, being published and 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 all of that and uh, and yeah and it is indeed the place where i saw one of your posts um which um <laughs> i have to say so this was a review of a book which you seem to not have been so happy about, or it seems to have, you know, let you down so at least a little bit. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about uh, Andreas Malm's uh, book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, So I wanted to maybe start with that, because that's personally how I found uh, you online, Mm -hmm. was this review of this book. What did Malm get so wrong in his um, sort of manifesto, you know, in your opinion? Uh, because Malm, for people listening who don't know him, is a, um, a an academic, uh, a, I think he calls himself a Marxist, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, he uses yeah. a lot of Marx, yes. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marxist academic, uh, S- Swedish um, mm. Who has become quite a strong voice in terms of the like leftist mm-hmm. environmentalist uh, spheres, but as uh, Sakshi wrote, there's still a lot to um, to say. It's it's not perfect, right? Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what would you say yeah. about his book? My introduction to mom. Sorry, cut you off. But my introduction oh, okay. to mom was a couple of years ago. Maybe I was 25, 26 when I first read Fossil Capital, and that was based on of his PhD thesis, which is absolutely good work and fascinating. And he did uh, engage with kind of fossil infrastructure, its genesis, and the historic origins of why capital requires this kind of infrastructure to perpetuate which is great I mean you cannot go mess up with your PhD thesis that's a solid three or four years of work gone into that book Uh, and I expected something that depth when I read how to blow up a pipeline because I had already started uh, this is forward by four years or something when I read how to blow up pipeline I had started work and I had questioned my own uh, approach academic approach to indigenous questions because once I started working and once I started interacting with indigenous scholars and indigenous communities the people I'm supposed to be working with it was shocking how little we knew and how impervious we were to our own privileges and knowledge systems and epistemologies that are so grounded in say, the Western uh, framework. So the coloniality of our own approaches, questions never, never, never really strike us until someone else points that out. So when I went out mm-hmm. for my field work in Canberra in 20, 20, 2019, 2020, and the kind of questions and grilling that communities did because we were coming from Oxford and Cambridge and asking these stupid questions about why is it so? And the ground realities of movements are so different, how they engage with the state, how they engage with surveillance, penal systems, how they engage with the extractive industries themselves. So for us, it's nice enough to see this is a pitched battle between two sides, but for them, it's so much more layered and 
so much more included in how economies and social fabric is built around this extractivism. So yeah. the kind of interrogation is not that of hostility, but strategy and and caution as well. Mm-hmm. So I, there was a lot of publicity around how to blow a pipeline because I thought, obviously pipelines where do pipelines <laughs> lay it's on indigenous territories and yeah. i was like okay he's going to start with this kind of uh, regenerated anger directing towards extractivism and ha- engaging with existing social movements of because we don't know anything about pipeline if you live in the uk or in the sweden and germany you can think of certain degrees of resistance to fossil infrastructure but there is a limit to how much you can yeah. oppose them because all of them are in indigenous land or people of color of black people engaging with these uh, fossil infrastructure foregrounds what we can do but the book had none of it and i was like mm, that's very strange something is very very wrong with this kind of approach which really really doesn't think there's already a movement that precedes what your approach is so how do you what is your anger against fossil infrastructure should emerge from who's being eliminated, whose land has been dispossessed and who's been erased in this conversation. Uh, I mean, averting this planetary crisis is important for all of us. We are worried for the future. We are worried for the planet, of course, but this is not new. And this this has been ongoing since the beginning of colonialism. So the land has been dispossessed, not because there's a coal mine, but but there are other infrastructures. The, the dispossession can happen even with green infrastructures. Yeah, yeah, It can happen with geoengineering. It can happen with your exact solution to colonialism. So unless mm-hmm. your anger against pipeline starts with your anger against colonialism and extractive capitalism, it's very incomplete. It's this, it's this deliberate ignorance of the book that made me angry, which led to okay. writing two different reviews. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah very 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 one oh the first review was from a screen to phrase and Mm -hmm. it was going to be delayed and i was extremely angry in january so i decided (laughs) to write the the one in um progress in political economy so there are two right okay okay yeah i mean anger can be a wonderful fuel sometimes (laughs) um so would you say though that malm still in some ways does succeed where love others have failed in seeing the central thesis of his book as being that of resistance um and and correct me if i'm wrong i i mm-hmm. personally have only read a very small part of the book uh, mm-hmm. i only found out about the book uh, a couple months ago mm-hmm. um but he does kind of um he does push for uh, a little bit of the dismissal of non-violent uh, yeah. intervention yeah. right yeah, um sure. would you would you say that like there is still things to be learned from that book or is it something that because it's missing that crucial element mm-hmm. um, offers maybe more not whole knowledge that then, yeah. you know, would not be of as much of use as other books that we should read? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this, I don't think there's any book which is well-meaning that needs to be dismissed. You don't have to entirely dismiss the mom's contribution as well, because, well, yes, there's some kind of uh, anger that is required to how you want to respond now. I mean, if you look at 
the unbridled expansion of fossil infrastructure, despite what we are facing and despite the scientific evidence, all of us are going to be angry and you want to do something immediately. So uh, slashing a tire of the SUV might find yourself satisfactory, <laughs> but what does that achieve? So that's a question. I mean, Indigenous people have, they haven't been non-violent, but they've been claiming and defending their land. So that just brings on so much violence merely because they are there at the front line fighting a battle that is essential for the integrity of their land and environment cultural relationships. So there is there's this different framing required for what is violence and what is non-violence. So mom's mm -hmm. uh, contestation might be with Extinction Rebellion and their claims for what is a non-violent practice. We just sit around do yoga on Oxford seat and that's going to claim, uh, that's going to attract attention from the establishment. That's not going to work. And mom's critique of Extinction Rebellion is very just in that, in that sense. Yeah. But also, I mean, then you're talking about a distinction between violence and non-violence in a very privileged sense, which is mostly palpable to white Western nations. Yeah, elsewhere, the, the dynamics change. So this usefulness of the book, but if you want to really start with how do you want to engage with social movement, then might as well start being indigenous scholars, because Nick is this, and he's talking about Dakota and uh, your history is our future. Future. Uh, yeah. And the subsequent scholarship around Red Nation and the Red Deal. These are important contributions to how indigenous movements have been going, mm -hmm. being carried out. And if you want to have a look at very recent book by John uh, Barker, The Red Scare, uh, it interrogates how settler nations have been making terrorists out of indigenous peoples and indigenous movements because that's necessary either they're they're there as a passive subject or they are someone to be quelled as resisting voices so i think our starting point should be from indigenous voices the black indigenous people of color who have actually had to face the state uh, while machinery and apparatus yeah. and to resist it mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, one of one such uh, situation that I, I wonder if you've been following or keeping an eye on mm -hmm. is that of the uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, yeah. in British yeah. Columbia, because I know you've you've done some work in Canada, possibly. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's uh, well, it's it's a topic that I'm I'm hoping to do my master's thesis on uh, yeah. the insurgency and counterinsurgency tactics between mm -hmm. the two. Um, I was just wondering what your analysis of the situation there in British Columbia is. Um, if you, you know, if you've been keeping up with the events and what you think about it. Also, I'm I'm very curious about your perspective in terms of you being a uh, a law specialist. Like, what mm -hmm. you think in terms of the law uh, that's being followed or breached um, from the yeah. parties there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I had to look at some of the cases for my thesis. I've looked at Australia, Brazil, and Canada entirely from the perspective of what perspective of what courts do. Uh, and Canada is an interesting uh, example because you expect Brazil to do terribly because of their political conditions and this Bolsonaro, you expect them to do horribly. But when political conditions are really falling apart, then you expect you surprisingly you find courts stepping in to do better things than what politics and the democratic apparatus can offer so brazil does better than canada and canada is doing poorly because 
they have had treaties, which gives certain degree of complacency in how you think, okay, we have agreed to this standard form of contract, which is anyway founded on very lack imbalance power structures. I mean, when did First Nations have equal power with the settler state to negotiate equal terms? So you are holding on to that land or on, on certain contractual basis, but the state can take it away at any point. It can open more to uh, oil and tar sands industries. It can, it can always bring, to, uh, bring forth more coal industries on indigenous land, all because you have treaty rights, which can be taken away at, at the whim of someone. So this existence of treaties and some form of section 35 constitutional recognition uh, makes this conversation very skewed. So because there's already a token liberal recognition, I think I'd really pitch in Glenn Coulthard's work. He looks at how liberal state grants right in order to take them away and suppress this, any more conversation about how to foreground indigenous sovereignty and self-determination in a true sense. So we're never having this question of sovereignty because you have had some contractual understanding through limited treaty, right? So yeah, they sort of assimilate the, uh, yes. the conflict, don't they? Yes, exactly that. And worst is, uh, it's not a treaty right, is not a given right. Every time you want to claim a right, then you have to go to court. That just prolongs a lengthy litigation. That comes at a cost. Um, First Nations have limited resources, which they need for health and welfare and education to keep up those their land, maintain their communities. The state isn't going to grant any of it. And not at least not without looking them looking down on them because for grabbing welfare these resources cannot be wasted in prolonged litigation that's a problem and but every time they want to claim a right over their land they have to prove it is their land they have to prove they belong to this community they have to prove through colonization they have maintained this continuity or exact set of rights Every time they have to be proved before courts, they have to be, their land has to be proved before courts. So all other cosmologies and ontologies of, of their relationship, other relationship with land and environment gets disturbed and torn apart every time they go and talk in this liberal settler language of belonging, possession, and property rights. So, and, and that's a problem with Wetsworth First Nations. It's There's never been a treaty. So now they cannot have one because, well, it's profitable land and any industry can establish themselves over there. It's in the interest of Canadian government not to have a treaty. But they have been sovereign people of that land for time immemorial. And obviously there will be a resistance. And every time they put a flag there and block, establish blockades and stop the Canadian government or extractive industries from moving further, it's a small victory for the entire notion of indigenous sovereignties because they are trying to establish something for the first time beyond those treaties. And I think it's, it has to be respected. It has to be supported in every instance possible. That's a long yeah. answer for your question. No, no, no. It's uh, exactly what, what we uh, want as well. We, we like the depth. You know, we <laughs> our we try with the podcast to go depth and um, and accessibility. Like we try to mix the two. Um, yeah, one of the uh, things that that really astounded me about the case and this kind of why I decided to choose in specifically for my mm -hmm. thesis was the way in which. Um, 
I think that there's that like glass shattering moment a little bit for a lot of people when they realize that um, the state or even uh, this kind of like created narrative about, for example, Canada being like a very good, mm-hmm. nice place that takes in a lot of refugees mm-hmm. and blah, 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 mm-hmm. all that stuff. When that like image is shattered, I think it causes a lot of like, um, what's the word? Um, dissonance, like cognitive mm-hmm. dissonance almost for people. Like what? That, yeah. that, that can't be right. <laughs> Canada yeah. <laughs> fucking people up with uh, for extractive industries? No, no, no way. No. Mm-hmm. Um, but but one of the uh, really interesting things I thought was that there are even legal uh, cases that have been won that still don't seem to truly change things. Like um, I'm going to absolutely butcher the name because I unfortunately haven't been able to find a uh, mm-hmm. voice version of this, but the Delma, Delmaguk, uh, I think it's Delma, Delmaguk. Uh, versus, oh, the climate litigation, I think. I think it was 1994. <laughs> Delmaguk uh, versus the state of British Columbia, which was a case where um, the, the Wet'suwet'en sued uh, the state and managed to basically establish their area Oh, Delgamuk. Delgamuk. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm terrible with names. Uh, yes, they managed to win the case and actually establish an area, quite like yeah. a big area of British Columbia, which is a fantastic victory. But even that doesn't seem to really affect the like very real outcome that today the state can just send in uh, plane loads of uh, militarized police and uh, of you know the CIRG, the really shady community yeah. industry response group, um, mm-hmm. to to basically uh, come in and, and chainsaw doors down and point mm-hmm. rifles in and, and arrest yeah. journalists. Like I don't know. I guess a lot of people looking at this case will probably be wondering mm-hmm. how can the law or can the law protect us if even those victories, like the case we mentioned before, can't help us still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Canada has had long history with RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and it's always been just violent history. And the jurisprudence is interesting because Delgamuk was 1997, and it didn't do much in terms of concrete solutions, because that was the first time the court uh, accepted that indigenous evidence can be accepted merely as an evidence and does not require validation by expert evidence. And then native title, uh, there's a question, there was always a question of Aboriginal title. And Mm -hmm. because it was not an issue in uh, contest, the main issue that was contested, it was only an obiter, which means an observation by the court that native title existed pre-colonization and it shouldn't have to be proved and it sent back the case to trial court. So they had to wait for another seven years until 2014 where Shilkot Nations established that aboriginal title exists and does Mm -hmm. not require excess proof and the mere sovereignty does not eliminate the fact that aboriginal title pre-exists colonization. Uh, And these are very incremental changes that comes to courts and it's difficult for a settler court to put colonization on trial. So that's the entire thesis, core of my thesis. What can they do, in fact? So there's always going to be this minor moments when they can 
sneak in this challenge to colonization or have a self-reflective juridical space that challenges settler states because they can never contest um, state sovereignty. That is not allowed in the courts because there's separation of powers and the court can only go so much. But there are smaller things that judges have been managing to do, especially if you have noticed the last week, there's a new case uh, Thomas Sykes versus British Columbia, where the British Columbian Supreme Court had this very uh, self-reflective moment when they realized the, all the laws and the, the Aboriginal title they have been enforcing has its roots in colonization. So what do we do? So there's tiny moments of these observations which can build up to a greater, uh, greater outcome later, uh, maybe in another five years time, we can have a better equipped court to deal with this question of mm -hmm. how do you recognize plural sovereignties and indigenous sovereignties without challenging state sovereignty. So uh, while courts make this huge contribution, it needs allies in social and economic spaces as well. So the movements contribute to how courts engage with these issues because judges look at the world, no matter how neutral they want to be, they are always conscious about what's going on. So mm -hmm. the Canadian Supreme Court in 1990s were far less progressive than what it is today. And we have had this incremental moment. Uh, Less so in Canada, but in Australia, we find a lot more hopefulness because they don't even have a proper constitution which can give you rights. So there's no question of human right. rights. Even. So when there is nothing, courts are forced to be innovative. So courts can do very little. And the kind of laws that can be enforced is primarily from the state. What can be enforced is kind of degree of hopefulness from courts. I think in that sense, courts have been doing a little more than before. Yeah, and in terms of the UN Declaration on the yeah. Rights of Indigenous People, uh, do you see that as having had a, um, like not just being a, you know, a text, like a, a piece of paper, mm. or, or has it been a little bit of a letdown? Because I know that British Columbia and Canada yeah. in general has only very recently uh, yeah. accepted. I think they were what part of the three or four nations, something like that, or like a handful oh, yes. of nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah they were Australia, didn't... New Zealand, Canada. They didn't want to sign the United Nations Declaration. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, you don't even want to hide that you're nasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like everyone's like, yes, we respect Indigenous people. Canada. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Canada's like, no, maybe not. No, we don't need yeah. to prove it. Yeah, if it were yeah. nice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, British Columbia, for instance, has enacted that UNDRIP into an act. So it's technically act which can be enforced in British Columbian province. But really, it's okay. it's one of the provinces that's really doing badly in terms of indigenous rights as well. So what do you do with these conventions, instruments and laws? It's, it's always a huge question. So it seems like a really important factor for uh, movements such with in, involving rural workers or indigenous peoples who are mm -hmm. uh, being uh, having their land repossessed by states or uh, corporate bodies. Mm -hmm. A really important factor seems to be how well organized, how act politically active and how much the, the group in question associates with one another and how 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 actually well organized they are as a political <coughs> unit to resist uh, these external crushes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, and in some instances, that that single factor seems to be so important. Seems it, it can lead to a movement success, like with the landless workers movement. Um, so, I'm really curious to know how this um, factor of sort of um, group organization or group sort of political activeness mm-hmm. um, interacts with the the factors that you're engaging with, such as sort of representation in court. Mm-hmm. or more interestingly sort of I, I don't know how to put it um foreign influential figures speaking on their behalf i wonder how these sort of factors interact and sort of perhaps augment one another yeah i mean with the people i see nobody is speaking on their behalf thankfully so there's less of contradiction uh, but i see where this discourse comes from because pastoralists, farmers, anyone who has anything to do with land always has this conflicting interest, especially if I think of Australia, which is closer to heart, there's always the existence, uh, an equivalent of Delgamo was the 1992 judgment of Mabo. So it recognized native title uh, of indigenous people. And obviously the question comes with, they have to go to the court every time and prove it. But the first time, 1992 decision came out, there was certain whipping up of anguish and anxiety around indigenous lands being recognized because that essentially, I mean, it's, it helps the political discourse to whip up that kind of frenzy around indigenous title. That simply means your lands are going to be taken away and given to indigenous people. That's not going to happen because even through the aboriginal title, the lands are not secure and they still have to go to courts and prove themselves. And that kind of conflict between whoever has interested in the land, especially pastoralists and farmers and indigenous communities have been conflicting because the state has created these regimes of rights and interests over land, Mm. which ensures they can never be allies, although it is in their best interest to be allies because they are fighting the same cause, the kind of capitalistic legal structure that enables divisions and dissenting voices. It's not in their interest to break up all this, but and these interests aren't really uh, hostile to each other, right? Indigenous sovereignty means they you use those land on their terms and not on the terms of settler state. It doesn't mean they have an exclusive possession and they're going to exclude you for a lifetime. And the need to build allies have been uh, it's it's felt in pockets. Um, if you look at Wave Hill uh, walk off uh, in Australia in 1970s, 1980s, which defined kind of social movement and social fabric that the, the labor unions and indigenous communities and land councils and farmers, they came together to resist uh, oppressive industrial conditions and claim uh, equal wages and fair conditions. So s- smaller examples, which we must make big uh, uh, paradigms out of these uh, smaller instances, because it's vital, especially in environmental movements, where these interests must uh, must align together. They have to come together. Uh, the I mean, now to maintain that farming communities, pastoralists, and indigenous peoples are opposing, it's kind of false equivalence as well, because the largest landholders in places like Australia are the extractive industries themselves. So Gina Reinhardt, she holds the biggest pack of land and she's a multi-billionaire and she's been running 
cattle stations and uh, mines and uranium mines, whatever their interests are, it's tangled. There's a very small community of people who are actually holding small lands. And I mean, none of these come in conflict with indigenous people at all. So the social movement and the question of solidarity is now ever more important than was before, because whatever we have in terms of precedence, we have enjoyed these kind of successes as in labor or the, uh, other instances, labor, labor unions coming together to march for uh, indigenous native title in certain pockets, something like Queensland and South Australia. These are important. Both groups have looked at each other, looked out for each other. And I think we need to forge our future movements in these lines, align those interests. And none of them are necessarily conflicting and there are easy ways of getting out of it, unless you're conflicting with the big mining interest and land holding interests. Yeah. Um, I, I think we, we've kind of gone around it a little bit, but we, we haven't addressed it specifically. Mm -hmm. um, your thesis yes, <laughs> could we idea. maybe like talk about it just a in a little bit more detail um i don't know if you have like a i, I guess since you're submitting it soon you probably have a working tight a proper title and everything um could you tell yes. us a little bit about your thesis and, and kind of the um the angle that you're you're going for yeah so i've called it very fancily sacred justices looking for indigenous environment justice in courts. So very self-explanatory. So yeah, it's a comparative uh, study of indigenous environmental litigation in Australia, Brazil, and Canada. So I was trying to pick out uh, settler colonial nations and a hybrid colonial nation, uh, which is Brazil plagued by internal colonization and trying, I mean, Australia and New Zealand were done to death. And that was my ample thesis. So I had to do something bigger and three mm. countries try to look at uh, their differing constitutional positions, uh, differing social conditions, but similar legal and political histories, uh, trying to explore what do courts do and how do courts engage with the question of indigenous environmental justice. So we know environmental justice, which is there's plenty of literature now with which had bided its time and its question of how it environmental harms disproportionately affect um, races and ethnic communities, uh, whether it's a deliberate choice or not. Indigenous environmental justice is a question of land and indigenous sovereignty. So it's not a mere question of whether environmental harms are disproportionately affecting them. If they are, then that is a that's a direct uh, causal effect of settler colonialism. So the question of environmental harm, environmental injustice begins at the point of dispossession. Will any of this make to courts? And there's mixed results coming out of it so because Australia's had uh, very recent history in recognizing indigenous rights, and they still don't constitutionally recognize indigenous voice. So what do uh, what do courts do under these circumstances when in courts have to foreground indigenous voices? Because these are all settler institutions, there's a contradiction of how do you challenge settler framework uh, while, all, while using the same apparatus that allows these people to come before courts. Uh, Australia is doing all right. Brazil is surprisingly doing well because they have to they do not just, it, they have a strong constitution, but also a very poor political uh, community, which is 
torn apart by Bolsonaro and this increasing challenges because they can see Amazon being destroyed and the only guardians that are there are Amazonian communities themselves and when they have to they, when they are the voice of climate movement they are going to be more proactive and Canada we just discussed mixed complacency and some kind of promise because increasing police violence against communities are getting on the nerves of judges as well so it's a kind of mixed bag I'm um, uh, aiming for a very hopeful message of trying to use juridical spaces uh, more because the only incremental changes we can get is from a well-dated authoritative space like courts. So a good radical jurisprudence is going to push social movements in certain directions and for the best. And also try to try to uh, demonstrate that judges have been listening to people's voices and people's movement. And that explains a lot of hopefulness uh, uh, that we find in these judgments, especially judgments related to climate change. So I'm looking at this uh, new jurisprudence, especially in the last 15 years or so, and how what we can learn for the immediate future. And that's my thesis. Sounds sinky. <laughs> do, do you know when, because uh, I'm 110% sure that I'll want to to uh, read it and uh, potentially quote some of it for, for my own, or at least to, to like learn from it. Do you know when, uh, I mean, mm -hmm. if it will be available for people to read and, and if so, when? Yeah, I mean, I should be able to make it public in some form by end of January, but hopefully cool. get a book sometime later. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds, yeah, that sounds really good. And yeah, the title, the, the title sounds uh, fantastic. It's one of the very few victories I think we can have in academia is uh, to choose our own titles and yes. <laughs> to make them as nice as we want. Um, I've seen some absolute bangers over the years. I mean, uh, I know, especially in the, in the physical sciences, I have seen some really ridiculously yeah. funny ones. Um, I know one of our friends, Pablo, friend of the show, Pablo uh, Bilbao, just published his first paper ever, I think, on lasers. Um, some really advanced physics stuff that, that mm -hmm. I, I can't understand. I think the title of it was like, was, um, what do you call it? It was a, uh, a set of letters that basically makes up the word crepe. You know, like pancake. Okay. <laughs> so his that's first good. paper that's is good. just called pancake. Baby. Yeah. It's like that's yeah, man. <laughs> we could never do that in, in social no. science. <laughs> um, I uh, I I saw kind of a, a little bit linked to this legal uh, stuff. You wrote a really uh, what I found to be a fascinating article about a really niche topic as well. I think mm -hmm. I mean niche in my own lived experience. I think it was last year, or the year before, uh, that was titled Marxist Legal Theory and Indigeneity. Um, now, I'm not going to pretend that I understood most of it. or, But, you know, some for those of us, not me, who are not law experts, um, could you tell us a little bit about what a Marxist analysis of law is and how does this concept of uh, indigeneity really and settler colonialism influence uh, fit into that? 
Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. I mean, there's some things you don't read after you've written and I haven't read oh. since 2020. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can skip. You can press the skip. We should have actually a button that says skip the question. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, that was intriguing. Um, for me, it was very intriguing question because that was the kind of response to John Bellamy Foster's article on Marx has mm. dealt with the indigenous question very satisfactorily. And I was like, no, because if you look at law, then there's different kind of engagement that Marx, there's, a not, there's nothing Marx hasn't touched on. And he's a fascinating man who's extensively done his homework and this insights into how society works, how economic organization organizes themselves. So that's fascinating. And then his conception of law is very, very helpful in um, how the power networks within law and outside of law responds. And I think it's a better job than what most jurists have accomplished, maybe except Julius Stone. He's really good. You should look him up. He's an Australian Jewish. Okay. <laughs> uh, but well, the Marxist legal ticket is he marks primarily looks at law has been put in place for the smooth functioning of the capitalist foundations of the economic transactions and not necessarily to empower anyone. And he's not very optimistic of the multiple roles that law can embody. And uh, he sees that as an extension of an oppressive apparatus and the kind of law he was exposed to and the kind of the legal system he looked into and it's very accurate in that analysis mm -hmm. but uh, people have been thinking about law since whenever we had this system of organization governance and regulation right so what does law mean to us now we need to have an improved understanding of what law can do and um, mm -hmm. marxist theory holds true for lot of things even now because the kind of extractive capitalism, colonialism, the kind of financial transactions and the entire existing capitalist economy operates on the and in the in the same framework, but at the same time, we've been using law to empower uh, human rights, gender equality, equality between sexes. Uh, uh, indigenous rights, because that was closer to heart. Marx also looked at indigenous peoples and uh, their exploitation. So he had this tiny bit in chapter 24 and 25 in the capital where he talks about establishing colonies to facilitate your market and expropriation. Uh, the question of expropriation accumulation is true even now, but indigenous people are engaging with the same state against whom they're establishing their sovereignty. Indigenous people are fighting the same extractive industries in court, despite the fact they know that neither the state nor the court is an ally. And why is that was my question. And the kind of engagement that we see from courts, uh, which are allegedly the, this very integral part of the law, the, the same oppressive apparatus, and they are responding to people in different ways. So what happens to this question of expropriation and accumulation? We need to have a broader approach to how we understand law now and how we understand what law is capable of or who holds the reins and who controls it. They're not necessarily one force that is controlling. You may tighten up your strings. You may have more uh, laws that facilitate 
accumulation. And yet there are avenues and interstices which can, which can break down the exact system. And that's what we are seeing. So a new approach to Marxist legal theory must understand this multiple other spaces of resistance and multiple other interpretations and interlocutors. And that can come from the black indigenous people of scholarship who've had different experiences of law and legal apparatus and the exact extractive capitalism, because once your experiences are filtered through these spaces, then you're going to have a different approach. So we just can't no longer stick to what Marx said. I mean, we have an obligation to do our homework because the old man 150 years ago did an excellent job of doing research. So what do we do now? We can't just <laughs> hold on to him. We need to build on him. And that's that's not a new thought, really. Samir Amin has always pitched for it. And he has said our responsibility is to carry from where Marx started and not just end it there. So there we yeah. are. Yeah, that's true. I, I feel like that's definitely not uh, said enough as well. I, I mean... I have to say a lot of uh, even just academics, but also, you know, just uh, Marxist voices, let's call them, uh, do, like you say, end mm-hmm. on Marx. Um, I um, I was wondering in terms of um, of this Marxist analysis of law, um, you talked about the, sorry, let me just get the article up because I'm, I'm, I don't want to mess up the, uh, no, I think I lost it. Damn it! I had I had it in my tabs, but I don't have it anymore. <laughs> okay. Anyways, um, I was just gonna say how you see the concept of uh, of this Marxist law and, and indigeneity fit mm-hmm. into the concept of um, I don't know if you've heard of, of uh, ZADs, like Zona Defendre. The uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I've never yeah, heard yeah. people say the term, so Z. I don't know how people say it. ZAD. Yeah. Okay. ZAD. Yes. <laughs> Z, yeah. <laughs> Because um, they seem to, there seems to be a lot of like these sort of alternative spaces and oh yeah, thank you for that. Um, a lot of alternative spaces and such that kind of go yeah against the the current system. Uh, at least you know from people like us who aren't uh, scholars of law, that's like in the best way that I can put it is just that these spaces seem to really run counter to the current institutions that we have, and mm-hmm. uh, the Zads, for example, in France. Um, though they're not indigenous uh, spaces, they are local spaces. Mm-hmm. They're usually uh, farmer-led or or farmer mm-hmm. um, kind of populated, and and they faced a lot of legal troubles in the current like climate and in the recent years. Do you think that um, there is ways? There are ways to influence the law to make these sort of things um, possible? Or do you see things like ZADs, these kind of more creative alternatives? uh, Mm -hmm. Do you think they will always kind of run counter to this system that we're in? Like, is there actually a way to make these kind of creative destructive spaces uh, legal and, Mm -hmm. and, and without issue? Yeah, I mean... It should be, right? These destructive places should be mainstream and it shouldn't be really necessarily seen as destructive because organizing community and multiple ways of living and living well, which is why indigenous philosophies have always been seeing this alternate ways of world making and earth making kind of relationship we have with our community, social structures, economic structures can be entirely different and perfectly productive and constructive. So um, I'm 
I mean, indigenous people aren't everywhere, but where they aren't, there are other communities which are at the receiving end of their oppressive structures. So, uh, see, UK has the history of labor movements and coal mining communities, which held their ground, organized their communities in a way that at least makes life marginally better for themselves. So establishing cooperative and thinking of how we can challenge existing systems without destroying the fabric of life. I mean, what we need is creative existence. And if you appreciate this planet, if you appreciate life, which is the best thing we have ever had, then we also have to think with different ways of organizing ourselves. And that won't be too counterintuitive. I mean, kind look at the kind of... Uh, I mean, UK is being terrible in terms of courts. I don't know where to think of an example from West, but if you look at, uh, say, Peru or Mexico, anywhere, the Latin American nations where there are multiple forms of ethnic communities, and this, this small kind of resistance always going on. People have lived, uh, the Libyan, the Yemenis and Syrians, and the kind of where they're constantly facing challenges. They manage to survive only because they always find these interstices or find organizing life differently. I mean, you just have to think and you just have to believe there's different way of world making practices that is possible. So I always fall back in indigenous thought because they, they've always set us an example and it is possible to live with the land and resources in ways which is not non-extractive but constructive and this mm -hmm. degree of codependency and not just giving and taking so these are values if you want to think of an alternative way of living even if you're not on indigenous land then there are terms and frameworks that from indigenous thought we can use that and uh, yes i mean if you this this all in knowing and information and epistemology is the uh, courts aren't going to be too distant if judges um, trained in different ways, which is one of my pitch in my thesis, because some judges are doing it because they can and they have learned and read and thought differently. So all of us, if we can read and think and know there are multiple ways of living and not to be surprised or shocked by creative challenges to what mm -hmm. we think is mainstream or conventional, then alternate world is possible. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I, I know, I feel bad even asking it because I know that focusing on individual actions mm -hmm. sometimes can be a huge detriment to the systemic changes. But um, something that Jamie and I often ask our guests is, what if, if anything, what can the common person do? Mm -hmm. um you know people watching this or listening to this <clears throat> what would you say that they can do to i guess in this case maybe influence <laughs> not the courts themselves but <laughs> influence mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. the the way in which uh courts will um uh, engage with climate and environment and indigenous issues and land rights um are there concrete steps that individuals can take or is, do you see this as more just of a, like really just a systemic challenge? It is both. In, I mean, none of that yeah. is purely structural, none of this is purely individual. Uh, I mean, 
there can't be a concrete example that I can think of, but I think every now and then all our privileges get to be challenged. And uh, at some point you should stop being defensive about it because if you there's a racial privilege, there's a class privilege, and that's going to be challenged in this alternative world-making practices. And uh, as long as you're trying to protect it, nothing changes, even if you're doing very personal changes towards climate, you're altering your ways of consumption, but you're still very much a part of certain social classes. And if you're keeping the racial privilege intact, uh, I mean, if there's question of everyday racism, are you going to do something at that in a personal level? Or are you going to be blind to it because it never really affects you? None of the environmental, climate, social, political questions are detached from race, the question of the race at all. So none of these questions are different. So it's a question of where do you want to make a change? Do you want to make a change everywhere? Do you want to make a change in how you understand? Do you want to make a change in how your families are organized? Do you want to make a change to educate people uh, around you? Do you want to challenge their presumptions? Do you want to challenge existing power inequalities where you can see it? I mean, you can see that in your everyday, everyday lives. You can see that in within universities. Uh, before we venture into even common people, we, we academics, we are behind desks all the time. So you have the privilege of voice. What do you want to use it for? Do you want to raise your voice and raise your concerns? You do want to write about it, even if you can't do anything. Uh, you can't be an armchair critique or armchair activist for long. Just speak up, show yourself in activism and movement and where you can make it. There's plenty of places. You just have to keep looking. That's it. I mean, I'm not in, I'm not in a position to preach at all because I keep wondering, what am I doing after this thesis? Is it just a matter of writing 80,000 words? So have I done something concrete in this in these time gone by? Because that's important. Even if mm -hmm. the thesis is substantial, I, I want it to be making a difference somewhere. Yeah to the communities yeah yeah i think you're definitely you're not alone in that in that sentiment i think uh you're, you're not the first and you won't be the last because i think <laughs> academics everywhere uh feel that that like want to to make a difference but like you said armchair activism you mentioned it, it's such mm -hmm. a a difficult um problem to get around i think in today's today's society with i don't know the especially the proliferation of social media and and how easy it, it has been made, not become, but it has been made easy to really like designed to be easy to resist anything by just clicks of buttons. And I mean, then, you know, in, in a way, like uh, Jamie and I doing this, uh, this show even is, is in a way, I think also uh, armchair activism for sure. I mean, we, I, I'm sitting on my couch literally because i don't have an office but <laughs> i would be sitting in a chair with <laughs> arms <laughs> on the chair if i could if i owned yeah, one the drink um, if you could as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um but you know i think i think there are different levels and and though awareness is always uh, a little bit overdone maybe in some aspects yeah. i think that's just important yeah to to just yeah. pair pair things up like to to go at it it's to go at it from a multitude of different like angles and, and points and to not just yeah. tweet and 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 talk on shows but also to to protest and and to take part in actions and and ask the communities what they want and need and 
and these sort of things that's at least how i i i've seen it um in the in the recent past um we i think we're, we're maybe going to start closing up uh slowly but um i don't know if uh, well jamie can i can i uh or do you want to ask about the rio tinto or should i no go ahead i know you want to Okay. <laughs> I always, I always uh, uh, out talk him though. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm the more talkative. <laughs> I, you know what? I will, I will live it. It's okay. I accept it. Um, but yeah, one of the cases that you've written about uh, is that of the company Rio Tinto, and it seems to be uh, of particular importance these days. Yeah. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about your work around Rio Tinto and their behavior in recent years and um, maybe kind of like contextualizing it in in the um, the more general sphere of extractivism and green criminology kind of that, that you've uh, had experience in. If, yeah. if that kind of behavior fits the general trends also, that's why I'm wondering. Yeah. I mean, yes, I mean, Rio Tinto was a sorry case. They caught out doing bad things, but all extractive industries are as bad as Rio Tinto is. It was just one instance of the Western uh, Australia, Jukun Gorge, where they destroyed an ancient Aboriginal sacred site. And they caught, they violated the terms of condition. They never disclosed they were going to explode site four and they carried out the extraction because I know it's profitable, it's important, and that's going to fetch them profits. So heads rolled, CEOs resolved, but they uh, resigned, but they took home a fat bonus as it happens with all extractive industries which have no accountability. Uh, uh, the thing with these industries is unless they are in courts, they, are, they have an opportunity to be penalized unless there is an exact law that they have violated. If they're just doing things that they have always obtained state sanction, they're never going to be caught out. So the kind of public approach was just one of instance because Rio Tinto has an ancient history of oppression of people uh, in Bougainvillea where they had copper mines and wherever it has industries, their footfall is all over in Canada. They have um, interests in dam hydroelectric power generations, tar, tar sands in South Africa, cobalt mines um, in Australia, in all sorts of uranium and the copper and iron ore industries. So there was just one sorry instance where they caught her and they were feeling sorry for themselves then apologizing to the communities. And they haven't been held to account yet. So there have been really? two reports. Yeah. There's been the interim report and in, which is from the parliamentary committee and also the final report where they uh, laid out future pathways for how they can recompense or do this thing right. But how are you going to bring the site that's been destroyed? So this was a site, yeah. the kind of visibility gave it the attention. But what about the constant destruction of sovereignties? What about the plunder of resources? And they never pay back the community. So there's always this royalties, which is carrot uh, and the penalties if they breach the non-disclosure agreement, which is a stake. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So when when something is tangible, it tends to attract more attention, which happened with the Jukungunya destructions. But most of the times, incommensurable losses of land and sovereignty. And also Rio Tinto was, well, they were really, really egregious years and they destroyed without the permit or without informing the communities. But a lot of others, something like Andrew Forest, they hold a great stake in how the economy is governed and defined. He holds a great stake in how land is distributed. But he is now the face of uh, non-extractivist green energy development. But I think he something the the Fortescue Mining Group, the exact industry which has been extracting um, resources, is now furthering green colonialism in both in Southern Africa and all over Australia. So these we shouldn't really distract ourselves from one industry or one event, but to see patterns of accumulation and expropriation and dispossession. So uh, if the standout instance of Rio Tinto drew our attention to how, how these corporations are designed to act with impunity, then we should think about a broader question of how do we challenge these structures of impunity and not just trying to remedy mm -hmm. this one instance. So they might be happy to have a payout. They're not legally obliged to do any of this. So the final yeah. report in the parliamentary committee uh, uh, asked all the extractive industries in Australia to hold a further moratorium, Western Australia to hold a further moratorium because their heritage laws are really, really poor and they, it doesn't, doesn't give the indigenous communities the power to veto anything. It doesn't give them an equal voice in how, which industries is let in and how they operate or how their heritage should be concerned. So they wanted to hold a moratorium until a new act is uh, put in place so that they can further uh, protection. But none of the uh, industries agreed. So there you go. What does this highly visible event do to the entire ideology of extraction? I mean, mm -hmm. if your profits depend on it, you will guard it with your life. So you're not <laughs> going to guard the heritage site with your life. Obviously, it's of no interest yeah. to you. It's, it's about whether you can get away with something or not. So there's no point in Hoping, uh, hoping allies are made out of extractivism. They are always going to be the other side. You have to wage war against. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just to, just to, to be clear, mm -hmm. there has been no reparation whatsoever from Rientinto mm -hmm. to the community. Yeah. Okay. And no, and the the heads rolling you mentioned were just people being fired or quitting yes yeah. They, yeah. okay they exited very gracefully yeah. <laughs> you can't fire me i quit yes yeah. um yeah oh that's that's just mm, that's yeah. painful to think about um yeah the the one of the cases that i've been really watching over the last uh year or two has been um has been the one of Stephen Donzinger uh, mm -hmm. yeah. with ExxonMobil. Um, I don't know if you, I, I guess you also have been uh, kind of seeing around. It's That was also really scary one because of the, um, I don't know, like the message that it sends to people who want to act and the, the potential for retribution, uh, which, yeah. you know, obviously for, again, like we said, the rea this is different realities for different people, for indigenous people, and people of color mm -hmm. in different uh, countries around the world, especially in global south, uh, of course, 
self-defense and action has always had retribution and has always had violent consequences um i guess for a lot of people this case was a bit of a shock because this time around it was someone who was from i guess the global north and also who's a lawyer uh, which yeah. is a kind of class of people that you don't really see often mm. being punished for something or even just being attacked for uh, yeah. something. And Stephen, uh, for those who don't know, basically managed to win a huge lawsuit against, uh, I think it was Exxon Mobil, and uh, for, to the tune of $9 billion, something like that, yeah. payout yeah. to the people of Ecuador, I think it was. And... The case is very like shady. It's very complex as well because there's they basically are try as far as I understood at least they are trying to get him on charges of um, like mafia like behavior or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- these sort of weird charges saying that he didn't want to give over his computer and phone with um, with contact information and all that of his. Uh, his clients because uh well he did it for obviously privacy reasons and to safeguard their information but they then argued that it was because he was uh racket- or, i don't know racketeering or part of this like <laughs> mafia-like behavior so steven has been facing uh hundreds of days in house arrest and went to prison recently i think he is out now and serving the rest of his sentence mm-hmm. at home again in the house arrest but mm-hmm. um the judge was, uh, what was her, do you know her name? Loretta something? Judge Kaplan was the first one. And oh, now there's okay. a, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. the first trial court, yeah. Yeah, but, and, then, yeah. and then this other judge was apparently also potentially in league with Exxon. I mean, there was a whole, like, yeah, I'm sure I mean, there'll be a film of this. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> Have you watched Dark, Dark Waters? <laughs> Dark Waters, no, I haven't. Either. Yeah, it's a lawyer who took on uh, Roger Blight, I think, who took on okay. Teflon and the cancerous contamination of their products. And it, it, he was tortured through prolonged harassment as well. So, I mean, whoever takes on these big corporations has has to pay mm. this price. I mean, think of what they do to indigenous, I mean, environmental defenders, doesn't have to be indigenous. The number of environmental defenders who are getting killed. So whoever takes on these corporations have to face their surveillance and and slap suits and uh, yeah. so the Ecuador was Chevron. So Chevron is a nasty one who's dealing with yeah. Stephen Donziger. Exxon Mobil mm, is Chevron. pulling a new stunt, uh, yeah. which is uh, <laughs> using the freedom of speech to slap down all climate litigation in Texas. I don't uh, know where, what the fate is right. going to be because they're going to claim they ha- they can endorse climate denialism because it's free speech. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get a defamation from Exxon for, for yes. mixing them up. <laughs> oh, they're going to be Sorry. happy. Bad guy number one, bad guy number two. My bad. Yes. Okay, oh. it's extremely painful, the realities of climate mm-hmm. litigation and ongoing climate struggle. Yeah. But we're grateful for people like Don Singer because he fought out, he fought for the communities and he, he knew he was going to pay up that cost and it's been going on for years. Imagine mm-hmm. the kind of pressure he has to endure because the communities haven't got the clean pay up at all. Chevron has been appealing the claim because nine billion, well, they're not gonna pay, although their turnout mm-hmm. was in trillions. 
And yeah, he released, I think last year, uh, Stephen released an internal memo by Chevron, which said, well, the, cl uh, the cleanup is going to cost not, it's just 0.2% increase in what we had estimated, but it's just waste of resources on indigenous people. We don't have to do it. So yeah. there's a kind oh of, God. yeah, there's a kind of animal yeah. we are dealing with. So naturally yeah. you can understand what kind of anger it generates. For sure, for sure. Um, is there are are there just to kind of finish up on are there on the on a potentially more positive note? Are there um, are there things that give you uh, optimism that kind of infuse you with optimism around green criminology, around environmental justice that you're seeing in the world right now? Um, yeah. Or is there nothing? I don't know. Maybe it's all depressing. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is why I stay with the quotes because it makes me happy because every now and Fair then enough. there's one positive judgment. But I think we should believe in people's movement because we have always been fighting this. The resistance is immemorial, irrespective of which nation you look at, you have always responded. I think whether we have something to be elated about or we are getting depressed with the kind of things unraveling around us, there's always people movement, people's movement that we have to put our faith in. And we are part of it, right? We're having this conversation because the three of us care here. And we want to work on this field because it matters. And we're not just doing it for some kind of claim or fame because it has to make this tiny bit of conversation can make a difference to a community because if can reach out to other people then well this hopefulness that we have invested in people's movement and um, marx would want this out of us so yeah <laughs> so, i think marx <laughs> keeps all, me great... motivated yes. yeah <laughs> no, that's a great note to, to end it on um sakshi thank you so much for joining us Thank you for coming and, and teaching Thank us so all much. about this. Um, it's really a topic that we honestly don't really touch on regularly or, or don't know much about. So thank you so much for that. And uh, do you want to maybe plug uh, where people can find you? Uh, maybe your blog as well, which is fantastic blog, okay. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Mostly it's my field notes from field work. But yes, I'm trying so to enjoyable, enjoyable to read it's, uh, and good yes. pics as well. So it's always fun. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm a photographer as well. But yes, you can find me on Twitter where I'm mostly active, talking both work and nonsense because I want to keep it a very informal space. And I've met a lot of my friends there. So I'm happy to chat with you on Twitter anytime. Right and so that's uh, at uh, Sakshi Arvind. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, your blog as well, which... Uh, it's called really Defined if, Ecologies. Yeah, there you go. So defineecologies.home.blog. Um, that is a really great place if you want to see what the life of a uh, researcher is like. And, and very, honestly, really well written and, and some great pics as well, like I said. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Big thank you to our Patreons as well for always supporting us. Without you guys, the show is not really that possible mm -hmm. because... It costs a lot. <laughs> we knew. Um, when uh, everyone was starting up a podcast. Yes. Thanks And yeah, if you're watching this live, you can also find this episode back on YouTube in uh, probably a few days. Um, if you prefer the audio version, this is on Spotify, um, Apple Podcast, all the places that you listen to your stuff. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for joining you. us. Yes. Have right. a good day. Bye bye. bye you too. Bye. Bye. bye.